So I'll read the blessing first, and then we will read through Genesis 12, and then get into the content for today. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshanu, Bumisvotav, Vitzivanu, Lyasok, Bidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. And Ashley's going to read through Genesis 12 today, and then we'll get into the content on it. Then Adonai said to Avram, get going out from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. My heart's desire is to make you into a great nation, to bless you, to make your name great so that you may be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Avram went, just as Adonai had spoken to him. Also Lot went with him. Now Avram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Avram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions that they had acquired and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they left to go to the land of Canaan. And they entered the land of Canaan. Avram passed through the land as far as the place of Shechem, as far as Morris, big tree, the Canaanites were in the land then. Then Adonai appeared to Avram and said, I will give this land to your seed. So there he built an altar to Adonai who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the mountain to the east of Bethel and erected his tent with Bethel to the west and I to the east. There he built an altar to Adonai and called on the name of Adonai. So Avram kept on journeying southward. Now there was famine in the land, so Avram went down to Egypt to live as an outsider there, because the famine was severe in the land. Just as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, look, please, I know that you are an attractive woman, so when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but, you'll, but you, they'll let live. Please say that you are my sister, so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Avram came to Egypt, the Egyptians did see that the woman was very beautiful. Indeed, Pharaoh's officials saw her and they raved about her to Pharaoh. Then the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, but Avram was treated well for her sake and he got sheep, cattle, male donkeys, male and female slaves, female donkeys and camels. But Adonai struck Pharaoh in his house, in his household with great plagues because Sarai, Avram's wife. So Pharaoh called Avram and said, what's this that you did to me? Why didn't you tell me that she is your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now, here is your wife, take and go. Then Pharaoh instructed men concerning him and they expelled him with his wife and everything that belonged to him. Okay, so in this, uh, in this chapter today, it actually starts the third of the Torah portions and it's called Lech Lecha, which means go or go for yourself. And as I think we've gone over it before, but the Torah portions are a the, the if you ever hear parsha or weekly Torah portion it refers to the division into I think 54 different sections uh the Torah so that you can read a portion each week and then every single year you would go through the entire Torah and so this one uh with the onset of Abraham it starts a new Torah portion called Lechlecha go or go for yourself and it's here that God gives Abraham the commandment to get up and to leave his family to go where he intends him to go. And beginning with Abraham, we see what's essentially a new creation of sorts because we had the initial creation, uh, which very quickly failed. Uh, and the 10 generations from Adam to Noah were wicked and they were wiped out in the flood. And then 10 more generations passed from Noah to Abraham and they similarly fell very far. Idolatry was introduced into the world in these first 2,000 or so years. In the year 1948 from creation, the sages tell us Abraham was born. And in the year 2000 exactly, uh, which the sages tell us is four years after the dispersion of Bevel, after the incident of Bevel that we read about last week, and six years before Noah's death, again in that year 2000, Abraham begins to influence and teach disciples to serve God. So in the first 2000 years of creation and everything, we see that um, we see that everything was, everything went very poorly. Idolatry was rampant, but this man named Abraham was born and he begins to, he begins to 
essentially change everything starting in the year 2000 from creation. And with this, the world itself shifts as Abraham begins a widespread return to monotheistic obedience to his creator. A lot of times he's regarded as sort of the inventor of monotheism, which he might not necessarily be the all-time first inventor because people before him, back to Adam, knew that there was other gods. But essentially with, with how pervasive idolatry had become and worshiping other gods and god systems, by his time, he essentially was kind of the founder of monotheism as we know it. <clears throat> and in Judaism, these first 2,000 years are actually, uh, the first 2,000 years with all of the idolatry and everything, they're actually referred to as the era of desolation. And after the onset of Abraham, it gives rise to the next era, which is referred to as the era of Torah. And so you go from desolation into Torah, and that is in the hinge <clears throat> point between the two is Abraham. <clears throat> and as a side note, I'm most likely going to refer to Abraham as Abraham, even when referencing him prior to his formal name change, because later on in Genesis, uh, right now, he, right now his name is Avram, but it's not until a few chapters later on in Genesis that his name is changed to Avraham. Uh, yeah, I'm just, I'll probably just refer to him as Abraham just for consistency's sake. Something that we don't see directly mentioned in the Torah is that Abraham actually went through 10 trials of faith, and it, it's, generally, it's generally regarded that he proved and he earned his righteous status by passing these 10 tests of faith, and the sages, the sages all state for the most part that he faced 10 trials, although there's some disagreement about what these trials include, and the splitting up and putting together of some of those trials, and so I'm actually going to read out of the Kumash, and I'm just going to read there. They have two lists of trials in there from two of the major sages. So, <clears throat> oh, and this is page 100 of the Kumash, 100 and 101. And so they give, they give the list of the 10 tests of faith of Rashi and then of Rambam, which are two of, two of the most, if not the most, prominent Jewish sages of all time. And so Rashi's list is, the first one is that Abraham hid underground for 13 years from King Nimrod, who wanted to kill him. The second test is that Nimrod flung Abraham into the burning furnace, which we talked about last week is a Midrashic story from the oral Torah that we don't see directly in the Torah, this showdown between Abraham and Nimrod. And third one is Abraham was commanded to leave his family and his homeland. And almost as soon as he arrived in Canaan, he was forced to escape, forced to leave to escape a famine. And then Sarah was kidnapped by Pharaoh's officials. Number six is the king's capture of Lot, his nephew, and Abraham was forced to go to war to rescue him. Number seven is God told Abraham that his offspring would suffer under four monarchies. Number eight is at an advanced age, he was commanded to circumcise himself and his son. Number nine is he was commanded to drive away Ishmael and Hagar. And number 10 is he was commanded to sacrifice Isaac, his, his son by Sarah. <clears throat> and so those are Rashi's 10 tests of faith for Abraham. And then Rambam's are, the first one doesn't start with the Midrashic story about uh, Nimrod and Abraham. It starts with uh, number one, Abraham's exile from his family and his homeland. Number two, the hunger in Canaan after God had assured him that he would become a great nation there. Number three, the corruption in Egypt that resulted from resulted in the abduction of Sarah. Number four is the war with the four kings. Number five is his marriage to Hagar after having despaired that Sarah would ever give birth. Number six is the commandment of circumcision. Number seven is Abimelech's abduction of Sarah. Number eight is driving away Hagar after she had given birth. Number nine is the very distasteful command to drive away Ishmael. And number 10, the binding of Isaac on the altar. <clears throat> and so for the most part, these 10 tests include all of the same situations. It's just uh, in Rashi's, uh, the first two tests of Abraham's faith involves the showdowns with him and Nimrod. 
and some of the some of the later ones were combined together under one commandment and so um yeah that, that would be something interesting to look into those those different tests of abraham's faith and if you actually if you actually look at it the a lot of sages and rabbis will say that the the tests get harder and harder as they go along and so that seems odd since the first tests of faith at least according to rashi involved him getting thrown into a fiery furnace where abraham likely assumed that he would die and the next one which is uh apparently harder than that one is that he was commanded to leave his family and homeland and uh they they justify that by saying you know you it's it's a lot harder to to pick up everything you own your entire identity the the foundation of your existence and just leave it behind it's it's essentially giving up your life in a different way and so the, those are just the, the 10 tests of his faith um and as we can see through those and throughout all other times in scripture abraham is the epitome of kindness and faith and i'm actually going to read hebrews 11 8 through 10 and this talks about abraham's faith a little bit this is probably one that a lot of us have heard before by faith abraham obeyed when he was called out called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he migrated to the land of promise as if it were foreign dwelling in tents with isaac and jacob fellow heirs of the same promise for he was waiting for the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is god and so we see that abraham is one of the go-to figures in the Bible when we're when we're talking about faith and uh, acting on your faith and what what results of a person's strong faith. One of these ten tests is what we see in this chapter. It's where God commands Abraham, who was age seventy-five at the time, and Sarah, who was age sixty-five at the time, to sever all ties with their family and their past and to travel to a new land. Um, God promises that he will make Abraham into a great nation. He will bless him and he'll make him into a blessing. And in verse three, we get a vital prophecy and promise to Abraham concerning this future nation. So God says that he'll bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse him. And um, one important thing to note is that when God makes a promise or a covenant, it becomes essentially a law of the universe as real and as efficacious as the law of gravity. And so when, when God makes this promise to Abraham, it's very real and it becomes an inherent law of the universe. It's just the way things work. Bad things will come from those who stand against Abraham's descendants. Good things will come, from, come to those who stand with his descendants. Um, and so we, for, for us today, this, this shows us that we absolutely cannot stand against Israel in any capacity. We cannot, for our own sake and for uh, Israel's sake, we cannot put ourselves on the cursed side of this promise to Abraham. Because today there's still a lot of conflict in the Middle East over Israel's very existence. After the, looking a little bit into a history lesson after World War II, which God actually used as an agent uh, to bring Israel back as a nation and to bring his people out of exile. Uh, Israel was reestablished as a nation and as a homeland for the Jewish people. The, or in other words, the land was returned to its rightful God-ordained owners, which he, he set it apart to be for his people. There's still a lot of violent struggle over their possession of this land, though, because the, the nation of Israel and the nation of Palestine still fight for control of this territory. And a lot of the world has become, begun to stand with Palestine, and they have started to view Israel as oppressors and thieves and uh, foreigners coming in and stealing this land from these poor Palestinians. And there's a lot of people not necessarily with bad intentions that make, make calls for unconditional peace and unconditional tolerance and compromise and uh, just all, all of these all of these 
ideas of peace and compromise in the Middle East. A lot of people today will call for Israel to simply give up or share some of their land in order to obtain peace with Palestine. And this cannot be something that we partake in because of this verse right here. Um, for starters, the term Palestine actually comes from the Greekified rendering of the word Philistine, which you might know as some of the most prominent enemies of Israel all throughout scripture. And so if you look anywhere in scripture, anytime Israel's at war with the Philistines or with any other nation for that matter, um, it is always the people who stand with Israel who end up on the good side. If you look at Rahab, for example, Rahab was Canaanite, some, some form of Canaanite when they were uh, taking over the land after Moses died. And Rahab, she turned on her own people. She, she, uh, she brought this, the Israeli spies into her house. She kept them safe. She let them go. She knew full well that her city was going to be getting destroyed, but she is counted as righteous because uh, even though she, if you want to phrase it this way, she backstabbed on her own city, on her own nation, she was the one who stood with Israel. And so her life and her family's life was spared, and she's counted as righteous and, and good for taking that action. Back to Palestine, whether Palestine or Philistines are historical enemies of Israel or not, any nation that's trying to rob Israel of their rightful heritage is an enemy of God's, as we see clearly in this passage. Um, <clears throat> all of that portion of the promised land in the Middle East belongs to Israel and Israel alone. We, we, don't get to, we don't get to take something that God has set apart for a specific nation, for a specific people, and hand it out to other nations just under, under the guise of peace and uh, prosperity in the Middle East. And uh, again, a lot of this is done with good intentions. It's just when you look at the Torah, we see that we can't do this, even if it results in war and bloody conflict. If you look at Babylon, even Babylon was punished severely for their taking over of the Israeli, the ancient Israeli kingdom. And that's even despite the fact that God intentionally used them as a tool for punishing Israel. And God God purposefully and vocally used Babylon as a tool to punish his people for his, their sins. But since this promise to Abraham, as we said, is essentially a law of nature, Babylon was punished, even though they were simply an agent of God's punishment. And I think, I don't remember which prophet it was, but I think in one of the prophets, God outright says, I sent the Babylonians in to capture you all, to take you over, to punish you for the things that you've done. But don't worry, I'm going to punish Babylon for that too. And so it, <clears throat> even the ones, even the ones that God intentionally used to do his bidding to come in and do that, uh, it's, it is a law of nature. And so it cannot, it, I mean, God can do whatever he wants, but it, for the most part, cannot be that someone would someone or some nation would stand against Israel and not be under this uh, cursing in this passage that we read here. And with all this being said, it is a lot of woe to any nation that stands in the way of or just stands outright against Israel. And so we had best hope that our country at least never wages war with or stands against Israel as this decision would undoubtedly be our undoing. It would be a very poor decision, and I have no doubt that it wouldn't take long for us to find that out. <clears throat> and moving on to the term Hebrew now, there is actually a lot of stuff to unpack just in the fact that Abraham is called a Hebrew. And one thing that's interesting about Abraham is that he's the first Hebrew. God calls him that. He He's called a Hebrew or in the Hebrew language, it's called Ivri, and the term Ivri, as applied to Abraham and people in general, has enormous symbolic significance, <clears throat> because the Hebrew word Ivri is from the Hebrew word Ever, which means the other side, and actually I have a PowerPoint slide with these words that I'm about to reference on there. 
if you look here, you can see the three different words that I am going to be talking about. So this word down here at the bottom is the word Hebrew. Um, and so if you look at all of them, they all three have the same letters in them. And here, so they all three have the same basic three letter structure. And so the, the most basic root of it, I actually just learned this in a Hebrew learning book that I've been studying lately, but the Hebrew word for crossover is avar. And the Hebrew word for other side or sometimes region, region beyond is a there, which is taken from that crossover. And then Hebrew, Ivri, is taken from, is also based on this root system here. And so uh, with that in mind, I'll. Where does it say, where does it attribute his name or him to a Hebrew in this, in this section? Um, I don't think it's in this section. Oh, okay. I, I think it's in. Um, I think it's in a couple of chapters. Okay, maybe. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Man, I'm missing it. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I want to say maybe. It's 14. Four, oh, 14? Yeah. Okay. So 14 is where he actually first gets called a Hebrew, but I got a little ahead of myself. Okay. Put I, it was, in today. I was just trying to catch up. And I'm like, <clears throat> you know, I don't know where I'm at. Um, okay. So we saw, we saw the word avar, which means crossover, ever, which means other side and Ivri, which means Hebrew. And so literally this means that this, this term Ivri refers to the fact that Abraham crossed over to Canaan from the other side of the Euphrates River, but the meaning goes a lot deeper than just uh, characterizing him by a, a physical jumping over a river. Um, as, well in the, as well as in the physical universe, Abraham and Sarah were crossing over to the other side of the spiritual universe. They were crossing over from their past life and from one side of the spiritual to divide to the side of righteousness or the other side. <clears throat> and so Abraham now was on one side of the spiritual divide while the world was on the other side of it. And in, in his culture, he was pretty much alone on the other side. Uh, so he, uh, he was called a Hebrew because, because of that jump he made uh, from from the side of the rest of the world to the side of righteousness to the side towards God or the other side <clears throat> um, and he as I said he was virtually alone on the other side and the sages explained that we too must be prepared to endure this same isolation on our in our walks with God and because the isolation is no less present today or any other time throughout history the pursuit of righteousness, not by common or mainstream standards, but by God's standards laid out in the Torah, it will isolate us from virtually anyone and everyone around us. Um, even in our country, America, which is predominantly Christian and influenced by Christianity in all of its fatal doctrinal flaws, this transition to Torah and obedience to God's commandments will be very difficult and very, very lonely for us. And those pursuing righteousness have to be prepared to endure such isolation. The same, uh, if, if we're to become Hebrews, if we're to move to the other side, we have to be willing to do what Abraham did, leave everything behind, leave behind all of the life he knew before and isolate himself from the, the system of the rest of the world. And um, the same message is president, or not president, present in John 15, Matthew 10, and 1 John 3, just to list some examples, and a lot of other places in the, I just learned this term, but the Barit Kadashah, which is the Hebrew term for New Testament. Uh, and I, I used to be of the belief, as I assume everyone here did, that the Christian church is the the hated people that is spoken of in these verses, but after learning more and more about Torah, I have begun to see that Christianity, along with the actual rest of the world, is part of the world that hates those who wish to truly follow Yeshua. Because in 
pursuing the Torah and the righteousness preached by Yeshua, we're going to be isolated even from the, the near one-third of the entire world that claims the same scriptures and the same Messiah as us. Because, and this, this is something that still just baffles me and makes me angry myself, but at least in America, from what we've been raised in, there is there's no demographic that's more opposed to obedience to God than Christianity somehow. And a lot of times it's not even as if obedience is simply unnecessary because essentially no matter what denomination or Christian church you go to, they'll, they'll make the claim that obedience to God is unnecessary. Uh, but in a lot of places, including at my college, obedience has been completely flipped on its head and it's been turned into something that's not only unnecessary, but it's outright evil. And they, they make that claim under the label of legalism. And legalism as a term gets really flung around a lot in the Christian church as sort of a defense mechanism against having to really do anything <clears throat> as, as far as obedience is concerned. And uh, I say again, this walk is going to be extremely lonely, but it's also going to be extremely rewarding if we if we keep pursuing it, if we keep pursuing Torah and looking at what scripture says and what God says and not what traditions or how we've been raised say. And also, I, I just want to say it's kind of a side note. I hope I don't ever give off this impression, but I never just want to poo-poo on Christianity and Christian doctrine just for its own sake. And I don't at all intend to speak ill of those in the Christian church as if we are something inherently better because all of us here were, or still to some extent are a part of the same system. I think that we should thank God that we escaped this faulty system in all of its uh, anti-biblical doctrines and that we should try to draw others out of it. But those still ingrained in the system are not our enemies in any capacity. They're misled just as we were for so many years. And so again, I'm not, I, I won't ever say things against Christianity or specific denominations beliefs just for the sake of beating down on those in it, because again, they're being misled by 2000 years of poor leadership and poor scholarship, just like we were. We are, we're still trying to figure out our own way out of the same system. Um, and so even, even though I, I think we're moving the right direction in studying the Torah, we still don't really have any place to beat down on other people for it because we just got out of the same place and we should absolutely try to draw others out of the same place that we were in as well. Now having the knowledge and seeing what we do. <clears throat> and does anybody have anything else to add so far? I, you had started talking about something and I feel like either I didn't get it or you need to articulate it. I did not understand what you were saying at the beginning when you were saying at the very beginning. Yes, at the very beginning of this conversation about um, what you had understood it to mean and what you now understand it to mean. I don't know. Oh, uh, you said that you saw it before. Oh, that Christians were the ones that were hated. Yeah. What? I, yeah. What I was saying Explain was I section when we were yeah when we were still in the. Christian system, for lack of a better term, I somehow, well, I, I was under the impression that the entire third of the world that claims Christianity as their religion were somehow the, the persecuted, hated ones of the world or whatever, where, like, despite, I think, I think I saw a statistic the other day, like, despite over 75% of America being or at least identifying as Christian, which, um, I mean, there's still some areas in the world where Christians are persecuted, but with, like, pretty much the whole world, except for, like, areas in, I think, Asia and Africa being completely against Christianity, I was thinking that, like, oh, yeah, we're the persecuted ones, but then mm -hmm. I started to study the Torah and see all this. And now I see that, oh, following Yeshua takes a lot more than just 
I, I don't know how to phrase it. A lot of things make more sense now that I see that Christianity isn't the, or Christianity at least today is not the, the one and only way. Like, so another, another passage that I've thought about a lot more is the whole, like the path is narrow thing that mm -hmm. Yeshua said where like many are going to go down it, but not. So he said, many are going to go down the path, but few are going to get through it. I didn't really understand how that applied since a third of the world claims Christianity is their religion. But now that I see that it's a whole lot deeper than just the very simplistic way that Christianity has laid out, I see how that and other ones make a whole lot more sense now. So the fact that Jesus followed Torah yes. complicates things immensely yes. for us. And what I'm also scared about is, <clears throat> so I now realize that I, I think I was probably wrong about the fact that the two plus billion people in the world right now represent the, the people getting through the narrow path and the narrow door. But what freaks me out now is what if the 3,000 people total on this earth that are like messianic observant Torah followers, what if there's like another narrow breakdown off of that? It's a lot, there's obviously a lot more than that, but just what if, what if there's another breakdown beyond like messianic Judaism? Like what if, what if I again think that like, okay, I'm on the, the straight and narrow path now, but actually there's another breakdown of an even smaller demographic of people that I'm still not a part of. And so that's a little bit terrifying, but I at least know now, or it at least makes sense now that a third of the entire world's population does not represent the extremely tiny path that Yeshua was talking about. That's something I even wondered while I was in, still in the Christian system is like the whole eye of the needle thing. Like how, I think that was specifically referring to rich yeah. people, but, but just the, the weight he put on like very, very few people are gonna, are gonna actually go down the right path. So now I think I see that, or the reason why he said that, or how it applies, or whatever. I guess I don't. I don't think that. I still don't think I <clears throat> explained it very well, but it makes a lot of sense in my head. But I can't really put words <laughs> to it. No, I think when it when I said that <clears throat> Yeshua following Torah is problematic to us, it's, it was tongue in cheek, meaning like that you know, like that causes problems to our. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. I didn't, I didn't think you were saying. To our. To how we were taught. taught and and yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That causes problems to our belief system that was comfortable. Yes. But did that clarify it better now? Yeah, I think so. Okay. After that in like the second part of god's blessing for abraham he says that in blessing him all of the families of the world are going to be blessed through him and this i, I mean i i think we've listened to like episodes or podcast episodes or something on this topic of what is it being blessed through him but i think this can have multiple different meanings or it has multiple different levels so the, primarily, I think what this means in Abraham are all the nations of the world being blessed through Abraham. Primarily, what I think it means is that it's going to be through the giving of the covenant or the Torah to Abraham's descendants that all nations of the world would be able to become blessed. Or in other words, Abraham's worthiness of bearing the Torah through his offspring was going to bless not only his direct descendants, but anyone who wishes to ally themselves to God through this shared covenant. And contrary to the mainstream belief today, 
again, one of the one of the unfounded ideas that are thrown around in Christianity, the Mosaic Covenant in the Torah was not only for people who were born as Jews. The covenant was available to the foreigners as well, so long as they put themselves under the same terms. And in the majority of cases, there was to be one law or one Torah for both the foreigner and the native-born Israelite. And there's still a lot of things about the concept of a foreigner or stranger that I don't understand yet. Like, I think there's different, I think we've talked about it before, like there's different classes or different types of foreigner, but um, still just in general, uh, a lot of times there was to be one law or one Torah for both the foreigner and the native foreign. And in certain places in the Torah, it even explains that the foreigner who allies themselves to God and Israel becomes as if they were a native born Israelite. And so it, it, it was, there's a belief that, you know, in the old system, uh, it was only for Jews, but then Yeshua came along and he brought all the Gentiles in too. And I think that's true to some extent with some of the, some of the things that he and his disciples that he made did, uh, but it, it wasn't, there, there's not a Jewish covenant and a Gentile covenant. Uh, there is, there's one covenant that we are all put under if we allow our, or if we uh, wish to put ourselves under that covenant. And I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but the Shabbat or the observance of Shabbat, it's referred to in scripture as a sign for God's people. And it's a lot like a wedding ring, actually, for those who are allied to God. And so... I'm going to read from another passage now. So listen, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about the Shabbat specifically. Uh, and this, and this applies to God's standards of righteousness and the Torah as a whole. And this is, I'm going to read Isaiah 56, one through eight. Thus says Adonai, preserve righteous or preserve justice, do righteousness for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning Shabbat and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of a foreigner who has joined himself to Adonai say, Adonai will surely exclude me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Adonai, to the eunuchs who keep my Shabbatot, who choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, I will give to them in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Also to the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai to minister to him and to love the name of Adonai and to be his servants, all who keep from profaning Shabbat and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Adonai Elohim, who gathers the dispersed of Israel, declares, I will gather still others to him, to those already gathered. And so, again, we see in this passage, especially where it says, uh, the foreigners who join themselves to Adonai, uh, to love his name, to be his servants, who keep from profaning the Shabbat and hold fast to his covenant, they will they will be allowed to uh, be a part of God's people just as much as any natural born Israelite. And so uh, that is, that is just, it, it is, it is not true that uh, prior to Yeshua coming, there was just nobody except for Jews allowed and that the, the Mosaic covenant was only meant for Jews and the, the Israelites. Uh, you, you look at Yeshua's lineage uh, and Matthew, and you look at the four women that are mentioned there, three of them were Gentiles that allied themselves to Israel. You have Rahab, which we already talked about. She was a Gentile. I think she was a Canaanite even. Canaanite from Jericho. Canaanite from Jericho. Yeah. So she was, she was <clears throat> just by her lineage alone, ultra bad but she allied herself to Israel. She made the right decision and she was, uh, she, 
she was uh, allowed to be a part of them too. Then you have Ruth. She was, uh, she was, I think, a Moabite, and she, uh, in if you look in the book of Ruth, she left her people, she left her God, she left her land, and she went with Naomi, and she allied herself to Israel the same way. And the last one is, or the third one that we know for sure was a Gentile is Tamar, who was the wife of Judah, or maybe not the wife of Judah, but uh, it, did he marry her eventually, or did? Tamar? Yeah. Did she? I don't know. She had his two children. Or not his only two children, but his two of his children. I don't know if there was an official marriage Mm. or if if he just Mm. he took the place of the son. Mm. Oh, well, either way, three of the four people and maybe oh, three of the four people and maybe even the fourth, Bathsheba were uh, Gentiles that were not of Israel and they allied themselves to Israel and now they're in the lineage lineage of our Messiah. And um, uh, one of the most destructive lies to pervade the Christian church is this idea that we have no part in and we should disregard God's Torah and the covenant that it has within. And remember what we talked about the very first day of our meeting in Romans 11, 11 to 31. Um, it, it explains that we're grafted into the same Jewish covenant, not some separate covenant, not a covenant with us with different terms. It is, we are grafted into the same covenant as them. Uh, there's one covenant, it's, it was first given to the Jewish people that anyone willing to uh, now or after, after it was first given to the Jewish people, anyone who was willing to, uh, using that phraseology from the word Hebrew, anyone willing to cross over to the other side is allowed to be a part of. And I think this whole, I, I think the, in the whole earth blessing refers to Yeshua as well, where through Abraham's descendants, which eventually would lead to Yeshua, Uh, this Messiah would be born, which would bring blessing and salvation to all the earth. And so I think it has, I think the, this little phrase has a couple different meanings and it probably has a lot more that I don't even realize yet, but primarily I think it is probably referring to the Torah, the giving, the giving of the covenant of Torah for all the earth to partake in. And eventually his descendants would give rise to Yeshua, which would, uh, Similarly, the whole earth would be blessed and salvation would be given to the whole earth uh, with, with Yeshua as well. Oh, and Jim and Leanne said, we found a little tidbit about the grafting thing. So what, so, uh, what is it about the grafting thing? So um, it's really kind of hard to explain. So I'll take a picture of this and send it to you so you can kind of do it yourself you do your own homework but what we found out um was that it started with rosh bomb <laughs> not rom bomb but rosh bomb who is rashi's grandson and he was also a commentator and he um interpreted genesis 12 3 to say um shall graft themselves onto you Oh, that's interesting. And um, so I have a whole, well, yeah, we we have this other kind of commentary that's kind of difficult to understand. But if you look at um, the word um, in the Kumash, it's, it's translated, it's the word in three that's translated, and they will bless the Nifrahu. Okay. So if it's it's um in the one who curses you, I will curse, and they will be blessed. That and they will be blessed is the nifrahu, and um this this guy explains it more in detail. It has to do with the form of that word in Hebrew, um, which. I in no way understand what these what these verb forms mean, but 
he says that through all this stuff that I'll send you at the end of it, it he's saying that the Christ, Christianity's understanding could be better served if they would understand bless as to be graft. Oh. And um, that would make a lot of sense then. Especially says, that Romans 13 or Romans 11. Yeah. And then it says in, and I don't know what this is, Yavamot, I don't know what that is. Um, Hazal explained that when the nations are grafted into Israel, they would experience the blessing of God. I don't know. Neither does Jim. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. We just, we just found that and thought it might be of interest to the conversation. Yeah, I, I, I think that would make a lot of sense if that, if that is true about the, the, how it's worded in Hebrew there, that. I mean, <clears throat> I feel like we miss the implication even of Romans 11, that they're grafted in, even, you know, I mean, grafted into Yeshua, who was basically living the Torah. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's an implication that's there to begin with without having to dig too entirely deep, which we have had to. You know what I mean? Like, and yet it was there all along. We just didn't see it. Yeah. You know, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. But that was all, I mean, that's awesome about it being that, that changes the 12-3. Yeah. Makes it a lot more evidently about and in, not just the Jewish people doing nice things for the world or anything like that or right but then the rest of the world coming in to yeah. the covenant it makes uh, it more directly about the covenant itself and uh, a word that's been tarnished lately but fits is inclusion you know mm -hmm. i mean it is inclusive it's not just that i'm gonna you know bless that you know what i mean it's just this bubble of people yeah yeah, and he, and he also didn't say, I'm going to bless your people this way. I'm going to bless the rest of the world this way. If that's true about the grafting in, then uh, it's, I'm going to bless your people in this way, and I'm going to bless the rest of the world by grafting them into the same way that I'm blessing you. So that, that's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that would make a lot of sense then. If that's true, it would, it would be. That's awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> Where was I? Okay. So then in verse five, after the initial, those initial blessings, we see where Abraham is. Uh, he's now leaving his home country. It says that he leaves with uh, his wife, Sarah and Lope, uh, which we, we talked about last week that Sarah and Lot were both children of Abraham's brother Haran, according to the oral Torah. Uh, so Sarah was, uh, Sarah was his niece, Lot was his nephew. Uh, he, additionally, he left with all of his wealth. And the wording that we miss here in a lot of translations is it says he left with the souls that they made while they were in Haran. And in Hebrew, the word here that is sometimes translated as people or souls is nefesh, which we usually translate as soul. And we were told that Abraham and Sarah made these souls in Haran, which is kind of odd phrasing, but the sages explain that this refers to all the people that Abraham and Sarah had won over to service to God. And all these people were all, all the souls that are referenced here are those people that became followers of God at Abraham and Sarah's guidance. And additionally, some commentators note that God had not told Abraham to take his nephew Lot with him and that it might have been a very big mistake to do so uh, because of the future conflict that happens as a result of taking Lot with him. But this theory is not for certain. And in verse 7, we see that God, uh, it says, God appeared to Abraham to speak to him. And we don't know for certain what medium these appearances happen through. This is, this is something I 
I'm not even close to understanding uh, what what it means or what's happening when it says that God appeared to somebody, at least in the Torah and uh, the, the Old Testament, because uh, later on in the Torah, we're told that no man can see God's face and live, uh, and God is not physical, and so his mentions of appearing throughout scripture are a little bit of a mystery, and I think it could be possible that his appearances are really just uh, angels or messengers in his place, but scripture a lot of times will clarify when it's an angel, so I'm not sure about this one. Uh, additionally, on the topic of angels, they themselves are complicated further too, and so angels themselves are complicated, that concept. They're not as simple as we typically envision them. They're not just people with wings. They're not fat little babies that fly around. Uh, the Hebrew word that we translate to angel is malach, which is actually where the name Malachi is taken from. Uh, and Malach just simply means messenger. And so Malachi or Malachi in Hebrew just means messenger. Um, and uh, cherubim and seraphim, if you look in scripture, they're actually a different class of spiritual being. They're, they're very unique. They're not necessarily just an angel as we typically think of them. Uh, and so that's just a a note on the, the uh, concept of angels. And I think it's also possible that God's appearances are through the sort of messenger form of Yeshua, although I'm not necessarily certain about this one either. And I very much hesitate to just throw around the Yeshua label on every single appearance that God makes throughout scripture. I think that's one thing that happens a lot in Christianity that I'm not so sure I want to just accept as cut and dry as that, where anytime it says God appears or God, God did anything involving a human form that it's just automatically Yeshua. I'm not, I'm, I mean, it could be true. I'm not saying it's absolutely not, but I'm just hesitant to just go to that right away uh, because it's probably a lot more complicated than that. But whatever the method though, we see that God appeared to Abraham and he confirmed again that he would give this land to his offspring. And next, after that, at the end of this chapter, we get this story about Abraham in Egypt. And Abraham in Egypt is actually another one of his 10 tests as we went over. Uh, and as a result of a severe famine in the region, God commanded him to move from Canaan to Egypt. And this situation actually foreshadows the same famine-induced flight to Egypt that his grandson Jacob is going to later on make, because a famine brought uh, his grandson Jacob out of, out of the land and sent them to Egypt as well. Uh, and so we see in the story that Abraham takes his things and he moves to Egypt and he obeys and he trusts God even despite having already been in the land that was promised to him. And so God took him to Canaan where he said he would make him a nation and where his descendants would possess it. And uh, I don't want to say immediately because we don't know how much time went by, but some unspecified time after that, he takes him away from the land and has him go to Egypt. But Abraham obeys him because he still trusts God. And when he gets to Egypt, he foresees that Abraham foresees that Pharaoh would lust after Sarah, and so he comes up with this claim that she is his sister. And if the fiery furnace story from the oral Torah we discussed last week is true, then Sarah actually was not his sister, but his niece, which means that he either lied, uh, he, he either lied, or at the very least, he was misleading in what he told the Egyptians. Um, and a few chapters later in Genesis, there's a similar story in a different location with the king Abimelech, where Sarah is taken essentially in the exact same way. And in that story, Abraham says that Sarah is indeed his sister, uh, but the daughter of his father and not his mother. And so in which case he was lying, or we simply have a language misunderstanding. I'm not really sure. I don't know. Uh, I mean, the oral Torah story, I, I assume it's probably true because the oral Torah has been passed down with a, a similar dedication as the Torah, uh, but 
that story, at, at least maybe the part about Sarah actually being his niece, maybe that's not true, or maybe he was lying in the other part of it. Uh, we, I don't really know for sure. Uh, but whether she was his actual sister or not, the sage Ramban notes that it was a great sin for Abraham to put Sarah in danger with the Egyptians. Um, and additionally, just about the state of Egypt at the time in general, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Wolby on the Parsha podcast, which I think I mentioned before, he talks about this situation and he talks about the depraved state of Egypt. And he discusses the odd fact that in Egypt at the time, they apparently were okay with murder, but not adultery because of Abraham's thinking in this section. Because we see in the passage that Abraham was afraid of them killing him so they could take Sarah, uh, which suggests that they were somehow okay with the murder side, uh, killing Abraham in order to get out of the adultery side and taking another man's wife as their own. Uh, and today, Rabbi Wolby explains it's almost the opposite way because now we rightly recognize murder as a terrible sin, but a lot of times we don't view adultery nearly as serious as we should. And so we, we need to just do, we and those ancient Egyptians need to do a whole lot better about recognizing the, the intensity of not just one sin, but all, all levels of sin. Um, and as a result of the situation with Sarah, God inflicts Pharaoh's household with plagues so that cohabitation with Sarah was virtually impossible. And so that helped to maintain Sarah's chastity while she was in Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh brings Abraham in after this to see if there's something else going on with the whole thing with Sarah that he doesn't know about. And Abraham confirms to Pharaoh that Sarah is in fact his wife. And um, Pharaoh gives Abraham supplies, or did it, does it he say already he did, did it at the beginning? Okay, he, he did it at the beginning. So bef he first before he found out, he gave Abraham, uh, he gave Abraham supplies and every, and materials and everything. Um, but now he tells Abraham to leave. And I think this also actually foreshadows another situation with Abraham's descendants, because when the Israelites are under the Egyptian rule, uh, we, we all heard the story of Moses going and saying, let my people go. So Abraham, Abraham's descendants, similarly, they go to Egypt. They are in Egypt for a while. Pharaoh's afflicted with plagues. Uh, and the Hebrews are, they're not just allowed to leave, but Pharaoh is commanding them to leave. He's telling them, you know, get out, don't get out, turn around, leave here, don't come back. And so I think this whole situation in Egypt has a lot of uh, foreshadowing involved for both Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's descendants later on. Um, and with that, that's the end of the content that I, or the, the stuff that I got ready for chapter 12. So does anybody have anything else to add or questions or anything? Oh, okay. Uh, Jim and Leanne found something interesting about the souls in 12.5. Can you hear us? Okay. Yeah, we can hear now. Nephish is soul, and nephishot is souls. And for some reason in the translation, it's translated as souls. In Hebrew context, soul, they, they speak as the community, as one soul. It's the entire nation. Oh, okay. So, because you spoke of souls and, and the individual context, and in the in the Hebrew, it is soul, it is nephesh, which is a singular meaning, probably meaning the nation. Yeah, it, 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 the rabbis talk about Israel being one soul, mm. and it's translated souls but if i know you're learning hebrew jacob so when you go back and look at that it says ha nefesh ha nef okay so yeah well soul instead of ha nefeshot which would be the souls yeah that that's interesting are you are you looking at mom mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah the soul that so they they um what so it would read actually in the english it would read 
Um, the uh, Sarah, his wife, and Lot, the son of his brother, and all their possessions that they had amassed, and the soul that they made in Haran. Meaning they increased the nation. Huh. So it's just it's just trivia. Cool. Yeah, I, I don't understand how we get that. Yeah, we're looking at the interlinear right now, and it says Ha Nefesh, and then in the English right next to it, it says the souls, plural. So I don't it says that, but it says that Kumash as well. It says and the souls. Yeah, I don't. So, just trivia. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. That's another layer. I, yeah, I, I would have never known about the the nation thing. That's that's interesting. That nations as a whole are referred to as as a, a soul. Is that, and I don't know if that plate goes in with the grafting up above that, that you're grafted in. I, I have no clue what, how it all tied all together. Just just that there's some differences in the Hebrew from what we believe to, you know, what we read in English. Who knows? I don't know. It's just yeah. interesting. Yeah, that even more shows the importance of learning Hebrew for all of us so that <laughs> we don't have a, a language barrier to go through to try and understand it all I, we'll get there eventually we'll all speak to each other in hebrew in another month or so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> a couple more weeks yeah a couple We're almost there a few days well done <laughs> yeah that that's that's pretty cool that is i'll see if i can find did you send us an article you said on the grafting in thing? Yeah, we sent you the actual article. I don't, like I said, and I sent it and I said, I don't, we don't know anything about the guy or whoever wrote that. We just know that it, it refers to rash bomb. So you have that reference. And then I sent you the, um, I sent screenshot of our book what, that talks about um, the grafting. And um, then Oh, I think I missed a page of that too. Sorry, I'll send that. And we'll also send the um, the twelve five stuff too on the soul. Okay, cool. I'll um, I'll I'll try and find a way to transfer those pictures and articles over to my laptop, and then put them on the the Google Drive for the study, so that we can all check them out if we want to, or anybody who's listening to the recording afterward can. Go check those out too. Just look at the page number so you'll know what order they're in since we goofed them up. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I I learned something interesting this week, but I haven't been able to verify it yet because I haven't found the right word. But um, I was listening to Rabbi say that any play anywhere it set in the Torah where it says the place is speaking of the mount. I can't find, I don't know for sure. I haven't found a the, proper word. The location to, of the temple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So something, something to look into. <clears throat> um, do we do we have anything else to go over before we finish up? And I'll I'll get all these articles and stuff that we've mentioned on the Google Drive so we can all look into it as well. Mm -mm. All good? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what is 13? That's when Lot and uh, Abraham split. Oh, okay. So we'll just do chapter 13 next weekend. Oh, oh shoot. Actually, next weekend, I think we're going to take a pause from going through the Torah in the normal way. And I think we're going to try and do a like a a lesson or celebration for Purim which is I think this Thursday and so I don't I still don't really know a ton about Purim yet but I'm going to do some research this week me and Ashley are going to do a bunch of research on it and we'll we'll try and uh, bring together a lot of information about Purim and then maybe do some of the customary things for it as well and then upload the or uh, uh, put it on Zoom or upload the recording so that everybody else can learn about it alongside of us too. So, I, and then the week after we'll do Genesis 13. So, hey, Jacob. Yeah. 
we have a PowerPoint presentation on Purim. Oh, yeah. That I'll, that, I'll, that I'll send you. It's really dorky, but we did it for our um, Ohel Avraham class. <laughs> cool. Yeah, that'll help out a lot then so that I don't have to awesome. sift through all the stuff online. <laughs> Ashley's excited. Huh? What? About the presentation. Oh, the presentation. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah that's pretty cool. Thank you. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll put that on the Google Drive too so we can all look over it beforehand or afterward or whatever i really yeah. it's really dark i guess it was for um jewish lifestyle class it wasn't for all hell abraham it's for jewish lifestyle oh so. okay a lot of times the dorky stuff helps you remember it a lot better though mm -hmm, true. oh you won't forget it that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes uh, Oh, the Hebrew alphabet. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, I'll I'll um look that over. We'll do some Purim research, and we'll have a cool little celebration and lesson with what we find on that next weekend. And I'll upload that power those all the pictures and powerpoints to the Google Drive as well, so we can look at it. But um, that's all we have for today. I think so. Thank you for joining Jim and Leanne and for your guys' input and resources too. And uh, we'll finish up for the day now. So see you guys and see thank ya. you everyone who's listening to the recording too. <laughs>